If you would join me in turning in your Bibles to 1 Samuel chapter 1, 1 Samuel chapter 1. We're looking at births that take place under miraculous circumstances. Last week, having considered the birth of Isaac to Sarah, Sarah, an aged woman, barren for all of her life at 90 years old, conceived by the power of God. God visited Abraham and Sarah with the birth of their child, Isaac. We're looking at these passage, passages because they represent the establishment of a pattern wherein God intervenes in the lives of a previously barren mother in order to grace her with a child, moving forward the story of redemption through the birth of this child by miraculous means. A pattern that is observable across the Old Testament, but most importantly, in the birth of Jesus Christ in the Gospel of Luke chapters 1 and 2. Our palate is wet. Our appetite is fixed in order to truly relish what we receive in Luke's account of the birth of the Christ child by what we read and understand of this Old Testament pattern. There is a, a, a certain beauty about 1 Samuel, which is our passage this morning. First and 2 Samuel, I'll refer to as just Samuel for shorthand. I had an Old Testament professor who used to talk about the intelligent design of biblical narrative. I think it's a phrase that he coined playing on the language of intelligent design in creation. But what he sought to communicate in that was that there is a depth and an artistic beauty, a certain literary complexity about the way Old Testament narrative is put forth that's really powerful. Give us the idea of these ancients who were less sophisticated than us. You, you, have, you have miscalculated with regards to the way God has inspired and formed his word as we have it today. There is an, an Old Testament scholar, a Jewish secular scholar on all things Old Testament. And yes, those do exist that has had a lot of influence on how I read Old Testament narrative. His name is Robert Alter. If he writes it, I try to read it. And I came across another scholar talking about Alter. Now, Alter is not a Christian. When I say he is a secular man, I mean he is a secular man in every sense of that word. He is a Jew, a Jew by ethnicity, but not by religious practice in any way, shape, form, or fashion. He is a truly secular man. But he's engaged in conversation about Old Testament narrative with a Christian scholar on the Old Testament. And at one point, and this is, this is secondhand, but at, at one point, he almost tears up in the conversation. And he says, there are points along the way where the story of the Bible is so beautiful, I almost believe it. I found that moving in a couple of different ways. One, there is a stern warning in his remarks that an individual can give all of their life and all of their academic career to reading and understanding the complexities of the Bible while completely missing the message of the gospel. Brothers and sisters, the Christian faith is not about the accumulation of information, our ability to win Bible trivia contest, but the internalization of the message of the gospel that transforms our heart, that makes an old creation new, that makes the dead to live, and the blind to see. That's the function of the gospel. That ought to be our aim. But it was also an encouragement to me to hear from someone 
who has so insulated themselves against the truth of the gospel that the beauty and the power of the Bible alone would just almost penetrate a calloused heart. My prayer this morning is that the beauty, the complexity, the power of our passage penetrate a calloused heart that the dead might live and the blind might see. 1 Samuel chapter 1. Join me in standing as we read together verses 1 through 20. The Bible says here, There was a man from Ramathaim Zophim in the hill country of Ephraim. His name was Elkanah, son of Jehoram, son of Elihu, son of Tohu, son of Zuf, an Ephraimite. He had two wives, the first named Hannah, the second Peninnah. Peninnah had children, but Hannah was childless. This man would go up from his town every year to worship and sacrifice to the Lord of hosts at Shiloh, where Eli's two sons, Hophni and Phinehas, were the Lord's priests. Whenever Elkanah offered a sacrifice, he always gave portions of the meat to his wife, Peninnah, and to each of her sons and daughters. But he gave a double portion to Hannah, for he loved her, even though the Lord had kept her from conceiving. Her rival would taunt her severely just to provoke her because the Lord had kept Hannah from conceiving. Whenever she went up to the Lord's house, her rival taunted her in this way every year. Hannah wept and would not eat. Hannah, why are you crying? Her husband Elkanah asked. Why won't you eat? Why are you troubled? Am I not better to you than ten sons? Hannah got up after they ate and drank at Shiloh. Eli the priest was sitting on a chair by the doorpost of the Lord's tabernacle. Deeply hurt, Hannah prayed to the Lord and wept many tears. Making a vow, she pleaded, Lord of hosts, if you'll take notice of your servant's affliction, remember and not forget me. Give your servant a son. I will give him to the Lord all the days of his life, and his hair will never be cut. While she continued praying in the Lord's presence, Eli watched her lips. Hannah was praying silently, and though her lips were moving, her voice could not be heard. Eli thought she was drunk and scolded her. How long are you going to be drunk? Get rid of your wine. No, my Lord, Hannah replied. I'm a woman with a broken heart. I haven't had any wine or beer. I've been pouring out my heart before the Lord. Don't think of me as a wicked woman. I've been praying from the depth of my anguish and resentment. And Eli responded, go in peace and may the God of Israel grant the petition you've requested from him. May your servant find favor with you, she replied. Then Hannah went on her way. She ate and no longer looked despondent. The next morning, Elkanah and Hannah got up early to bow and worship before the Lord. Afterward, they returned home to Ramah. Then Elkanah was intimate with his wife, Hannah, and the Lord remembered her. After some time, Hannah conceived and gave birth to a son. She named him Samuel because she said, I requested him from the Lord. May the Lord bless the reading and the preaching of his word. You may be seated. Note that verse 19 is careful to point out that the Lord remembered Hannah. She conceived and bore a son eventually named Samuel. Samuel sounds like I ask for him. The language of asking for him or asking in general is a prominent feature within this section. Samuel sounds like in Hebrew, I ask for him or requested him from the Lord. And so she gives him the name Samuel. God remembered her. And the result of that was the ability to conceive and the bearing forth of a child. We talked about this idea, this concept of remembering last week. These are 
moments in time and biblical history when God intervenes in some powerful way. These are not about God recalling past events or recapturing recollections long since forgotten. These are about punctuated moments in human history when God intervenes in order to create significant change to write the next page, to turn to the next chapter in redemptive history, the story of what God would do in, in uh, his chief creation, mankind. Last week's passage was the birth of Isaac, who represents the next link in the patriarchal chain. We worship the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob by faith and through the adoption that comes with faith in Jesus Christ. We are a part of that Abrahamic lineage. We are a part of the family of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. God is moving the ball forward, so to speak, with regards to the unfolding of this plan for the salvation of a people all his own. Samuel stands at an interesting place in Bible history in that he is the last judge and an early and influential prophet. Usually when we talk about the Bible, the period of the judges, we say there are 12 judges. And there are 12 judges featured in the book of Judges, six major judges and six minor judges. But in some respects, there are 13 judges, Samuel representing the last of those judges. And he, in his capacity as prophet and priest, would anoint the first king in Israel's history and eventually would anoint the chief king in Israel's history, David, in whose lineage our Savior, Jesus Christ, would be born. When God remembers something of salvation significance begins to unfold. There are actually liturgical readings in the Jewish tradition that pay homage to this concept of God remembering and how newness is brought from the old during Rosh Hashanah, the celebration of the new year. There are readings of these remembrance passages to remind themselves of how God remembered and turned a new page in redemptive history. For instance, in Genesis 1, after Noah and his family had been aboard the ark for 40 days and had witnessed the torrential downpour of rain that had flooded the creation and brought punishment against the sin of the world, the Bible says God remembered Noah as well as all the wildlife and the livestock that were with him in the ark. God caused a wind to pass over the earth and water began to subside. In Exodus 2, after Israel had been in, in Egyptian bondage for more than 400 years, the Bible says God heard their groaning and he remembered his covenant with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He saw the Israelites and he took notice. In an early but powerful salvation passage, the book of Leviticus provides a prescription for responding to one's own sin. What do we do when sin creeps in? How do we as a people, Israel might ask, respond when we as a nation have gotten off course? The Bible says, but if they confess their sin and the sin of their fathers, their unfaithfulness that they practiced against me and how they acted with hostility toward me, then I will remember my covenant with Jacob. I will remember my covenant with Isaac and my covenant with Abraham, and I will remember the land. When God remembers in this sense something of salvation significance, is about to unfold, and such was the same in the case of Hannah. We're introduced to this attractive character, this endearing character, this character commended to us as a model in so many ways in verse 2 of chapter 1. 
The Bible says here with regards to Elkanah that he had two wives, and that's where the trouble begins. The first was named Hannah, and the second, Peninnah. It's worth saying again because this comes up so often. If you do any reading in biblical academics, the problem of polygamy comes up again and again and again. And there have been a few times when in conversation with secularists, it has been pointed out for me that the Bible says all kinds of things that should not rightly be observed in our present day circumstance like a man having multiple wives. If that is your opinion or position, you just don't know how to read the Bible well. Polygamy, having multiple wives, is never commended to us in the Bible. It is always disastrous. Most notably, Solomon, the wisest man in human history, who takes 700 wives and 300 concubines, and not only does he wreck his own life, he virtually destroys a nation. Solomon is the last king to reign on a, on, on a united throne in Israel. Solomon's lack of wisdom in taking so many women to himself ultimately results in failed leadership that separates, that divides the nation to the northern and southern tribes. The situation is no better for Elkanah, though he has but two wives. He has more problems than what he's able to manage. Verse 3 tells us this man would go up from his town every year to worship and sacrifice to the Lord of hosts at Shiloh, where Eli's two sons, Hophni and Phinehas, were the Lord's priests. Now, we're only barely introduced to Eli and his sons, Hophni and Phinehas here, but they play a somewhat central role in the early chapters of the book of Samuel. Eli is guilty in the book of Samuel of what may be the great sin in this narrative section of the Bible, the sin, what I call the sin of passivity. In other words, he's not actively involved in great unrighteousness, but he sits idly by and allows it to happen. Later in the book of 1 Samuel, Hophni and Phinehas, the sons of Eli, Eli's a priest and his sons are priests, they're serving in a tabernacle in Shiloh. And they use their proximity to the tabernacle to sexually abuse the women who are coming and going from the tabernacle. Now, I happen to believe that there's a hot corner in hell for people who use religion as a pretense for abusing women and children. And 1 Samuel seems to reinforce just that notion. They eventually die, and Eli, their father, is killed under the judgment of God, not because he was a participant actively in their immorality, but because he knew it was happening, and he failed to take any steps whatsoever to stop it in the moment. All across the Samuel narrative, no one gets off just because they weren't actively involved if they knew it and they failed to take action to stop it. The sin of being passive is roundly condemned in First and Second Samuel. The most famous or infamous example of this is in Second Samuel chapter 11, the chapter that begins the David and Bathsheba incident. David sees Bathsheba, he lusts for her, he takes her to himself, she conceives, he concocts a plan to have her husband killed eventually, and David and his family fall under the judgment of God. That whole scene in 2 Samuel begins with this narrative observation that it was the spring of the year. It was that time of the year when kings go out to battle, but David was in Jerusalem at his palace. 
when he should have been actively at war, when he should have been actively at the side of his service people, when he should have been actively pursuing victory, when he should have been doing something, David was doing nothing, and it put him in a position to succumb to this kind of temptation. It may seem an overstatement, but one of the chief sins in First and Second Samuel is to sit idly by and watch that something would happen. One of the commendable features of Hannah's character in our passage is that she does not sit idly by wringing her hands over her circumstance, but takes matters to some extent in her own hands. I'll show you what I mean in just a moment. Verse 4 says that when Elkanah offered a sacrifice, he always gave portions of the meat to his wife Peninnah and to each of her sons and daughters. But he gave a double portion to Hannah, for he loved her, even though the Lord had kept her from conceiving. Her rival would taunt her severely just to provoke her because the Lord had kept Hannah from conceiving. I don't understand all of the ins and outs of this observation being made twice here, but anytime something is restated in this manner, it's worthy of some additional attention. Here the Bible is clear that it was the Lord that kept her from conceiving. Perhaps it is that coupled together with the later observation that God remembered Hannah and she was able to bring forth a child, we are to take note that God is the giver of life. It isn't that this is so much come upon Hannah as a punishment against her, but that God seems to be prompting her for some new realizations. Realizations that on her part really need to be made along the way. This chapter represents a critical juncture in Hannah's life where she comes to some wholesome spiritual observations. The Lord had kept Hannah from conceiving, and later it is the Lord who grants her conception and the birth of a child. I think, I think, and this is an important point to make here, I, I think there has been a great relax that has happened in the pro-life movement since the overturning of Roe versus Wade. And it behooves us to be reminded this morning that God is the giver of life and that the work of protecting and defending the sanctity of life is, is not even in part accomplished. It is the role, the responsibility, and obligation for every believer who's embraced this theological concept that God is the giver of life that we would continue to march forward protecting, defending, laboring for the sanctity of human life from the moment of conception till the final natural breath is taken. In this post-Dobbs world, the pro-life movement is going to take different shapes and forms. It may look somewhat different than it has looked in the previous 50 years, but this is no, no less a responsibility and obligation that we as the people of God, having embraced the reality that God is the giver of life, should and must have embraced. In verse 7, the Bible continues noting, whenever she went up to the Lord's house, her rival taunted her in this way every year. Hannah wept and would not eat. So every year they go up and they make this sacrifice and Throughout the year, her rival, Peninnah, is taunting her. I have children, and you don't have children. I have children, and you don't have children. Perhaps there was already a little animus between Peninnah and Hannah, given the fact that Elkanah seemed to have loved with real affection Hannah somewhat more than Peninnah 
the sister wife, as they've come to be referred to in recent decades. There's already an opportunity for there to be some tension, some conflict. Even if they'd have been the best of friends, there's just something about sharing the same husband that can be problematic. And then Peninnah has these children, and Hannah has none. And Peninnah realizes that it's easy to provoke her sister wife, her rival Hannah, by pointing to the great number of children she herself possesses. Her sons and daughters are noted in the plural in our passage, and yet Hannah remains barren, unable to conceive a child. But the voice of her rival, the voice of Peninnah, is not the only voice in Hannah's ear. Continue in verse number 8. Hannah, why are you crying? Her husband Elkanah asked. Why won't you eat? Why are you troubled? Am I not better to you than ten sons? Her husband's trying to console her. and Perhaps there's something noble about what he does in the passage. There's at least implied in the book of Samuel that his efforts were noble and right and maybe on some level on the right track. For instance, later in 1 Samuel, the people of Israel asked for a king. And God says, am I not better to you than ten kings? There's something of a parallel between the language that God uses to interact with the people of Israel at that point and the language that Elkanah uses here in our passage. But as, as noble as Elkanah's motivation seemed to be, there's something yet undone about what he suggests. There are two voices at this point in the narrative in the mind and the ears of Hannah. There is the voice of Peninnah who says, you don't measure up. You don't meet cultural expectations. You've not satisfied cultural norms in the bearing of children. And there's the voice of her husband that says, find your satisfaction, find your fulfillment, find your consolation in me. Let's unpack that for just a moment. In this ancient cultural context, your worth, your value in a literal sense could be attached to the number of children you did, or in Hannah's case, did not have. Frankly, the more children you have, the more financially stable you would be. If you had children, it meant that you had labor. Whether you were a part of agricultural society or a part of the marketplace, you needed assistance in order to make things go. So having children, first and foremost, represented a certain amount of financial stability. There was cultural pressure to have children for your personal financial well-being. There are some broader concerns. Socially, the more people you had, the better fortified you were against neighboring nations. Everything in the cultural tide was driving in the direction of have children, have children, have children. And Hannah's hearing from Peninnah, and she's hearing from the tide of culture that you don't measure up because you've not met cultural norms. That may sound antiquated. That may seem a great distance off. And I can hear Westerns saying, oh, that is an outdated and outmoded, chauvinistic, oppressive society, oppressive toward women. But I would remind you that within living memory, this was a part of our social experience as well. The, the, the greatest television program to ever be produced in human history is The Andy Griffith Show. And I, I say that with a tremendous amount of conviction. You should believe that and embrace that with all of your heart. There's an episode in The Andy Griffith Show produced, I would remind you, just about 60 years ago, 
where a farmer who had lost his wife has a beautiful daughter by the name of Ellie. Ellie is beautiful, but you can't tell it. Her labor on the farm has taken its toll. And so Andy's girlfriend takes it upon herself to intervene in Ellie's experience and provide her with all of the makeup and the dress-up equipment in order to be as beautiful a young woman by social standards as what she could be. The farmer rejects this, fearful that he'll lose his farmhand daughter, Ellie. By the end of the episode, Andy intervenes, as he always does in the conclusion of every episode of The Andy Griffith Show, convincing this farmer that he'd be better off with a male son-in-law farmhand than he'd ever be with a female daughter farmhand. He relents, she wears the makeup, and everyone wins in the end. That is, in effect, the same kind of social experience that Hannah undergoes in our passage. She is under the pressure that she would afford her family economic stability by virtue of bearing children. Now the tables have turned. In just 60 years, my observation has been that we have come to the other end of the spectrum where now financial stability, the, the, the economic well-being of your family is better secured not by having many children, but by either having few children or no children at all. I mentioned to you last week a concern for mothers within our congregation, women within our congregation, struggling with infertility and the temptation that might exist to draw too bold a line between the experience of barren mothers in our passages and their personal experience. I want to be sensitive to that in our congregation. But this morning, I want to go to the other end of the spectrum and note for those of you who feel undue pressure that you would not have more children when that is your strong desire, the desire of your family and perhaps the providential plan of God for your life, that just like Hannah, you would resist cultural pressures, that you would succumb to the will of God for your life. We ought to never ever, 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 ever regard our children as a means to financial gain or stability, nor should we regard them as a hindrance to the measure of success we envisioned ourselves enjoying. We ought to never objectify our children in that way. There are not objects, they are not pawns, they are to be, aren't to be played with. God doesn't give them to us for our exclusive satisfaction, but that they might be given over into the service of the God of heaven. So there's a word of caution in this little sermon series against both ends of the spectrum. Against finding yourself so crestfallen, the absence of children in your life, that you can't rejoice and delight fully in the things of God. Or to see yourselves as needing to curb somehow the number of children that you have, lest you run the risk of jeopardizing your ability to retire at 55, enjoy a beach condo, and drive all the cars you had hoped to drive over the course of your life. She rejects Penina. Robert Alter, whose name I mentioned earlier in the message, says that there's significance in the fact that Hannah doesn't answer the voice of Penina or her husband. So she doesn't answer Penina, who says, live up to the cultural norm. And then her husband speaks, am I not better to you than 10 sons? It seems, it feels noble, right? But all he's really asking her to do, what he's inviting her to do, is to shift her hopes and ambitions 
away from having children and investing those in himself. Elkanah takes the approach of most modern therapy. What most modern therapy invites us to do is not to repent of our sin or to make real pattern of behavior changes, but to to turn to deflect our harmful habits, our harmful addictions over to things that are regarded socially as more personally beneficial. I've been a gym rat since I was 13 years old. It used to be kind of a macho thing. It used to be kind of a vain thing. But at this point, at 41, it's just trying to live, right? And stave off old age and have the stamina and the energy enough to do the job that God has given me to do. I've observed this kind of phenomenon in the gym over the years. You see people who are coming away from abusive, harmful relationships or people who are coming away from substance abuse and they... they, They throw themselves at personal fitness, at personal well-being as a way of filling the void created by the absence of this abusive lifestyle or substance abuse or addiction. What you see over the course of time is that if there isn't a real change of heart by the power of the gospel, they become just as obsessive, just as compulsive, just as addicted with regards to personal health and well-being as they ever were in this other department of their life. It's only that in this new arena, it's socially acceptable, where it was roundly observed with addiction or abuse, that that was itself self-destructive. Apart from the gospel, all you ever see is the shifting around of various addictions and the hope that we land on something that's determined by someone somewhere to be profitable or personally advantageous. This is effectively what most modern therapy invites us to do. Elkanah is saying to Hannah, shift your obsession from conceiving and bearing children over to me and it simply will not satisfy. There's some young people in our congregation, you have your cap set for a husband or a wife, and perhaps you've convinced yourself that they're going to fill the void in your life. And so you've thrown yourself at them, thrown yourself at that relationship, hoping, dreaming, that that will bring you happiness and joy and satisfaction when it cannot. And those expectations are unfair for the partner of your future or the partner of your present. Inevitably, they will fail you. Inevitably, they will come short of your full-hearted expectations for them. They cannot do for you what only God in heaven can do, and it is patently unfair to require such a standard be met by anyone, let alone your personal partner. And when they do fail, as they inevitably will, you'll only find yourself in this cycle of looking for and grasping for the next person that you'll set your hopes and dreams upon in hopes that they will somehow meet your hopes and dreams, fulfill all of your expectations and ambitions. It may sound noble on its face what Elkanah says, but he cannot provide this for Hannah. And if what author says about our passage, that there's significance in her refusal to answer their request, Hannah understands it as well. Look at verse 9. The Bible says here, Hannah got up after they ate and drank at Shiloh. This is where translations can be really important. 
You say, well, she got up after she ate. That's what we all do is we get up after we eat unless we've experienced some disastrous fate. We're going to eat. We're going to get up and move on to the next episode. But this is idiomatic. In other words, it means more than what it appears literally to say. This means she took her stand. Hannah put her foot down. Hannah put her line in the sand. Hannah takes a stand. Hannah takes matters into her own hands. That's a strong way of stating it. You'll see why in just a moment. But she refuses to sit passively by and, and live with the weight of her circumstances. She got up after they ate, and what she does next is to pray. This is something along the lines of a conversion experience on the part of Hannah. Eli the priest was sitting on a chair by the doorpost of the Lord's tabernacle. Deeply hurt, Hannah prayed to the Lord and wept with many tears, making a vow. She pleaded, Lord of hosts, if you'll take notice of your servant's affliction, remember and not forget me and give your servant a son, I will give him to the Lord all the days of his life and his hair will never be cut. What Hannah says in essence is that I've been motivated by selfish reasons in desiring a child so strongly, a desire to meet the social norms, a desire to find fulfillment and satisfaction. But God, if you'd be pleased at this point to give me a child, I will forego all of the personal advantages that might come with the bearing of that child. I will give him into the service of the Lord and he will not cut his hair, which is to say, He'll take a Nazarite vow. What happens is that Hannah gives birth to Samuel, and as soon as he's old enough, she takes him. In fact, the Bible says that when he was weaned, she took him to the tabernacle, and she gave him under the care of Eli, the priest, and Samuel, the boy priest, the boy prophet, grows in stature in the tabernacle. From small child, he lives in the tabernacle in service as a priest. She says he won't cut his hair here. It's a reference to a Nazarite vow. I heard a preacher a while ago describe the Nazarite vow this way. If you were born of the tribe of Levi, you were by birth a Levitical priest. Levitical priest from the tribe of Levi. It's where the word Leviticus comes from, that early book in the Bible. So a Levite was by birth a priest. But if you were one of those other 11 tribes, you could volunteer yourself for Levitical service, for priestly service by taking a, a Nazarite vow, not cutting your hair, not consuming alcohol. Samuel is going to be a voluntary priest by taking the Nazarite vow. So Hannah's going to give him into service for all his days. Now think about this. Aside from the fact that there are financial advantages to, to having children and Hannah's day. We might argue that there are certain financial advantages in our day attached to having children one way or the other, either positively or negatively. There's impact made by the giving, uh, by the birthing of, of children in our day and age. There are all those added blessings that come with having a child. There are those playful moments, the hugs and the kisses, the warm embrace. There's, there's propping up on the fence as you watch your child run the wrong way around the bases at the t-ball game while you tell all your friends about his future Major League Baseball career. There, there's sitting with your child and their friends as he colors outside the lines and you share with all of your friends of his great academic brilliance and how he's going to be the CEO of a Fortune 500 company. There are all those moments along the way. The nearness of a child that we treasure, that we 
value in such a powerful way. But Hannah will forego all of these and more. There'll be no financial gain to the family of Hannah because of the birth of this child. There'll be no propped up on the gate at the t-ball game, watching him run backwards around the bases, no drawing outside the lines. She will give this child exclusively into the service of her God and the people of her God. This is really a remarkable thing. Now, this pattern that we've been observing, whereby God remembers an individual and re remembers his broader people and advances the ball in redemptive history, is present here in this passage, and it is the most influential passage for Luke as he frames the story of Christ's birth in the New Testament. In fact, in 1 Samuel chapter 2, Hannah prays. There's a lengthy passage wherein Hannah prays, and she cites a number of outcomes that result from God having remembered her. And that prayer provides the framework for Mary's Magnificat in Luke chapter 1. Before we turn there, look with me to 1 Samuel chapter 2 and verse 5. Hannah prays, those who are full hire themselves out for food, but those who are starving hunger no more. The woman who is childless gives birth to seven, but the woman with many sons pines away. The Lord brings death and gives life. He sends some to Sheol and raises others up. The Lord brings poverty and he gives wealth. He humbles and exalts. He raises the poor from the dust and lifts the needy from the garbage pile. He seats them with noblemen and gives them a throne of honor. What Hannah is describing is the reversal of fortunes. She was once the well-loved wife, but who had no children. Now God has given her a son. The tables within her family dynamic has forever been changed. This is a common feature in 1 and 2 Samuel. Mary celebrates the same in Luke chapter 2. She says, he has looked upon me with favor on the humble condition of his servant. God has taken this virgin maiden from an obscure place in the midst of an obscure people and given her a place of priority in all of human history. Mary goes on to say, surely from now on all generations will call me blessed because the mighty one has done great things for me and his name is holy. His mercy is from generation to generation on those who fear him. He has done a mighty deed with his arm he scattered the proud because of the thoughts of their hearts. He has toppled the mighty from their thrones and exalted the lowly. He has satisfied the hungry with good things and sent the rich away empty. Both Hannah and Mary say in long form what James captures succinctly when he said, God gives grace to the humble, but he resists the proud. And in their humble state, both Hannah and Mary had been exalted in incredible ways such that here we are thousands of years removed, still celebrating that moment in time in human history when God remembered Hannah, when God remembered Mary, looked upon his people with favor, wrote the next, and finally wrote the last chapter in redemptive history. Hannah goes on to pray in verse 10 of 1 Samuel 2, those who oppose the Lord will be shattered. He will thunder in the heavens against them. The Lord will judge the ends of the earth. He will give power to his king. He will lift up the horn of his anointed. 
The idea of lifting up the horn of his anointed speaks to the appointment of a king. At this point, Israel doesn't have a king or even a king system. But Hannah is foreshadowing what God would do in the appointment and the anointing of King David on the throne of Israel. But is it barely possible that what Hannah seems to prophesy in her prayer would have implications that would extend far further into the future than just the kingship of David? It seems that Mary believed so, and it certainly seems that Zechariah believed so. In Luke chapter 1, the chapter closes, turning away from Mary and Joseph, the mother and father of Jesus, to Zechariah and Elizabeth, the earthly parents of John the Baptist. Zechariah's name means the Lord remembers. We noted that last week. Here's another interval in human history where God remembers his people and the result of God's remembrance is the salvation of his people. God is now writing the last chapter in redemptive history. And Zechariah, again, whose name means God remembers or Yahweh remembers, provides his own prophetic utterance. In Luke 1, 68, the Bible says, Praise the Lord, the God of Israel, because he has visited and provided redemption for his people. He has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David. The very language that Hannah uses in her prayer of praise, Zechariah takes up to celebrate what God had done in his own day in the sending forth of this Christ child born under miraculous circumstances that many by faith in him would be saved from their sin. Hannah would give birth to a child that she wouldn't have the same experiences with that other parents would. This child would not function within the family to enhance their financial stability. Wouldn't even be there at a number of points along the way. He would be born exclusively for the purpose of service to the king and the people of the king. Mary certainly seems to identify with that sentiment. Realizing that the child she carries in her womb would not be born exclusively for her delight or enjoyment but for the service of her God, for the salvation of God's great people. I hope that along the way, as we look at these examples in the Old Testament, that your palate is wet and your appetite is fixed to truly relish what God has done in the sending forth of his only son. And I hope that the beauty with which God has done it and the beauty with which God has inspired the story to be told would penetrate callous hearts, that the power of the gospel would search you over, save powerfully, that you would behold this morning the irresistible beauty of the one who came and bled and died and rose again on our behalf and rushed to him to know him in his fullness. Let's go to him in prayer. Father, we thank you for these moments together this morning. Ask God that you would move among us that we might delight in the beauty of the gospel. God, it is not that you decided to move at first for the salvation of your people 2,000 years ago and the birth of your son Jesus, but that in the very foundation of the world, you took the initiative, you moved, you set the course of human history. 
Lord, not only that your son would come and bleed and die, but you have orchestrated the very events of our life. Some, even that we would be here under the preaching of the gospel that we might repent and believe. Thank you, God, for the way you sovereignly provide for our every need. God, I pray that as we enter into a time of response, that you would compel us by your Holy Spirit to examine ourselves, to see that we're in the faith, that the beauty and the power of your word might penetrate the hardest of hearts, and that some might be saved. We ask it in Jesus' name.